This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. As we continue our series of studies in the Sermon on the Mount, we're today in Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at just one verse, verse 12. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Hear the word of God. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word hungry. come to your word with anticipation because this is your word. It's living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Father, we pray as we study your word together that your spirit would take this scripture and would apply it. Lord, would, would cut with that double-edged sword and do surgery on our hearts to make us more the people that you would have us to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you. Uh, the word so there, it could also be translated therefore. Uh, and so we should ask what it's referring to. We have here a verse that is a conclusion, that is reaching the end of, of, a, of, an, of an argument, uh, and this is its conclusion. But the question is, what is it referring back to? Jesus says, so do this, but what is the so pointing to? Well, it could be pointing to what comes immediately before, and I would suggest actually more than just verses 7 through 11. Uh, I think it really, on one level, points back to all of chapter 7, uh, Verses which have to do with our relationships to other people, verses 1 through 5, pointing out the need that we should, on the one hand, not be judgmental or hypercritical of other people, instead being preoccupied primarily dealing with our own sins, removing the log from our own eye before we uh, attempt to remove the speck from another's eye. On the one hand, not being judgmental, but on the other hand, not being naive, not being undiscriminating. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Uh, It is not our calling to subject the gospel to contempt. It is not our calling to subject Christ to blasphemy, uh, where people are willing to talk. Even if they object, even if they're skeptical, if they're willing to, to talk, to debate, to think, uh, we should engage. But where they respond only with anger, with hostility, with blasphemy, no, we need not subject the pearl of the gospel to that kind of behavior. But then Jesus in verses 7 through 11, we looked at last time, tells us to ask and to seek and to knock. Uh, God's promise that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven give good gifts to us? In Luke's account, that good gift particularly is designated as the Holy Spirit. 
Because as we saw, these verses uh, are not just a blank check to satisfy any particular selfish craving we might have, but rather in the context of the Sermon on the Mount are praying for the kind of godly character that we find portrayed, the kind of supernatural even love, compassion, even toward our enemies that we find called for in this teaching. And so on the basis of all of this, and certainly everything that has come before in this sermon, Jesus concludes, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, as we look at this, we're looking at it basically under three headings. First of all, the principle that Jesus gives here. Second, the reason for it. And then third, the application that flows from it. So first of all, the principle that Jesus lays down here is whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them. Now, this is not an unfamiliar teaching in many religions. However, everywhere else you find this, it is put in the negative. In other words, it's put in this form. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want him to do to you. Catch the difference. It's a negative. Don't do to someone else what you wouldn't want that person to do to you. Put in the negative. Uh, about... 20 years B.C., 20 B.C., uh, Rabbi Hillel was asked by a prospective convert or proselyte to Judaism if he could declare the entirety of the law while standing on one leg. Obviously a pressing Matter if he could uh, accomplish declaring the law in perhaps as brief a time, maybe as long a time as he could stand on one leg. It reminds me of the time my daughter could recite the entirety of the books of the Bible while standing on her head. Well, could Rabbi Hillel stand on one leg and declare the entirety of the law? His opponent and rival, Rabbi Shimei, or Shammai, had already been challenged with this, and he told the man to go away. Well, Hillel... Uh, actually did on one leg stand and say as his summary of the law, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. That is the whole law. All else is commentary. And then I suppose he put his foot down. Well, again, it was put in the negative. Uh, In the Apocrypha, particularly in the book of Tobit, uh, the character tells his son, and what you yourself hate, do to no man. Again, in the negatives. Parallels are found in Confucius, Epictetus, the Stoics, Buddhism. All of them put it in a negative form. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want them to do to you. Always in the negative. Which has something of a, of a begrudging feel to it, does it not? It's, it's passive. You don't have to do anything. Just don't do something harmful or hurtful toward another person. But Jesus puts it positively when he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do that for them. You do that to them, which is actually far more searching, far more broad than to put it in the negative. It actually requires something of us because what you would wish from others toward you is what you should do toward them. D.A. Carson writes, Here there is no permission to withdraw into a world where I offend no one, but accomplish no positive good either. 
You see, Jesus, putting it positively, sets us a much higher standard. Now, the question is, we would agree with that. The question is, do we do it? Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Well, who could, who could disagree with that? But do we do it? Do we live by it? Uh, obviously, very broad, a place to start would be to ask yourself, me to ask myself, what would I like others to do for me? That's where Jesus started. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do to them. What would I wish others to do to me? Well, let me give you some things to think about. I would like others to be interested in me and concerned for me. I should be interested in and concerned for those around me. I would like for others to be kind to me. Therefore, I should be kind toward others. I would like others to be patient with me, especially in my shortcomings and failures. And so, therefore, I should be patient toward others in their shortcomings, patient with them when they fail me and disappoint me. I would like others to pray for me. Am I praying for them? I should be praying for them. I would like others not to talk about me when I'm not present to explain myself, defend my actions, or if need be, apologize and try to make things right. And therefore, I should not talk about another person unless he's present to, def- to explain himself, to defend himself, or perhaps to apologize and to try to make things right. And so it goes. And we, could, we could make an endless list here of things that we wish others would do for us, ways that they would treat us, therefore ways that we should treat them. Now we need to recognize, as we've said about the Sermon on the Mount before, and it's true here, this is not an absolute law for all circumstances. The executioner, death row, wouldn't want someone putting him to death, therefore he shouldn't put others to death. Is that accurate? No. Because Romans 13 tells us that the state bears the sword to maintain justice. It is a minister of God and carries out its calling in that way. As with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, this is describing the the life of a believer in terms particularly of relationships, of interpersonal interaction with brothers and sisters in Christ first, but then all people. And certainly this applies in terms of our relationships with others. Now, what's the reason for this? Jesus gives us this principle, what I wish others would do to me, the way I want others to treat me so I should treat them. Well, Jesus gives the principle here, uh, the reason for it. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. I doubt Jesus was standing on one leg when he said it, but he says here, what I have declared to you is the summary of the law and the prophets. Now, when you hear that, uh, if, if you uh, are, are, have been with us in this series or are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, that expression, the law and the prophets, should mean something to you. It should ring a bell. It should raise a flag in the back of your mind. Because we've already had that expression once in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Uh, and then he goes on to say in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he went on to explain on uh, the rest of chapter 5, and really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what he meant by that statement. But Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them, come to live them out. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is clears away the traditions that had crept up around the law and the prophets, in some cases to the extent of negating them, and gave a fresh exposition of what God himself, and Jesus as God himself, had in mind when he gave the law in the Old Testament to begin with. That the important thing is not some mechanical checklist approach to the law, some external, superficial approach to the law, to where a man could say, well, I've never committed adultery, therefore I'm not guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. And Jesus says, no, it's not just external, outward, superficial conformity, it's the heart. What is your heart before God? Do you love God? Do you desire God? Do you want to obey God? It goes far, far deeper than just an outward, apparent conformity to the law of God. And so Jesus taught through the rest of of chapter 5. So when we come to this section, in a sense, we've come to um, the second of a pair of bookends where Jesus started talking about the law and the prophets. And here he he comes to the conclusion of the matter. For this, to do for others what you would have them do for you, is the law and the prophets. Now, what does is mean? I've had that question before. Well, here, what does is? This is, you, we could translate is different ways. This isn't the only place in Scripture. Remember, Jesus said, this is my body. Does he mean a literal one-to-one correspondence, as some have held? Or does he mean this represents my body? This is, in a metaphorical way, my body, as my body is holding this bread up. Well, here, this is the Law and the Prophets. What does he mean? Well, we could take it in a couple of ways I think would be accurate. This summarizes uh, the Law and the Prophets. To do for others what you would have them do for you uh, is a summary. It encapsules the, the whole of the Law and the Prophets as they govern our interpersonal relationships. We could also say this fulfills the Law and the Prophets. You could break break it down into a lot of detailed laws, a lot of very specific cases, but if you want just a blanket summary of what it's all about, then do for others what you would have them do for you. Now, Jesus has taught about this in other places. Remember the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Very similar to this. Just as you are concerned about yourself, provide for, care for, protect yourself. So those things that you would do for yourself, you should be concerned to do for your neighbor. And you know Jesus deepened that when he said to his disciples in the upper room, As I have loved you, so you should love one another. Now, we're talking about the level of the horizontal. Our human relationships with husband and wife, parents, children, friends, co-workers, whatever the, the relationship might be, and certainly believers to believers, you say, well, where's God in all of this? Well, we'd have to say that this assumes and rests under the first great commandment, which is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of this comes under being poor in spirit, the very first beatitude, humbling ourselves before God, receiving his grace, 
in Christ. It assumes that. Those things are the background to this. That if we are those people who have humbled ourselves before God, Christ died for our sins, we have trusted in him, we love God with all of our being, we will be people. Because we have received the grace of God, his kindness, his mercy, his love toward us, we will be the kind of people who want to show that toward others. And this is just another way of putting it. What you would have others do for you, so do for them. It's based on love to God, which itself is based on the grace of God in Christ. This really does capture it. It really captures the spirit. It captures the entirety. We could break it down into details in various cases, but Jesus really does state the entire law right here. And in fact, it it captures the Sermon on the Mount as far as our relationships go to each other. Uh, If we did this perfectly, it would be the perfection Jesus calls for in chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The love he calls for for in chapter 5, verse 43 you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so on. It really does capture everything Jesus has been talking about in terms of our relationships with each other to this point. If I've wronged someone, uh, I need to ask their forgiveness, apologize to them, ask their forgiveness just as I would want them to do if they had wronged me. And so on. If uh, And again, want them to Pray for me, I should be praying for them. All that Jesus has said to this point is is captured here in verse 12. We've seen the principle, uh, we've seen the reason behind it. Now let's talk just briefly in closing about some applications that really do flow out from this. Uh, And the first would have to be the need to become more and more aware of our own self-centeredness. We have to become, to obey this, we start by becoming more aware of our own innate self-centeredness. Instinctively, by nature, we are all self-centered. Starting with the garden, when Adam and Eve were tempted Uh, They knew God's command, they had his instructions, and yet they set themselves up as the arbiter, the one to decide, the ones to judge between what God is saying and what the serpent is saying. In other words, they took God's prerogative to themselves. They became self-centered in the fundamental sense of that word. Uh, So whether you call it self-centered, selfish, You may not think of yourself that way, but when you stop and pause, especially in the light of teaching like the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to see how self-focused, self-consumed, self-absorbed, self-centered we really are. And therefore, before anything else, this verse should drive us to our knees before the cross in repentance, because before it does anything else, this verse convicts this verse like God's law. And it is the summary of the law and the prophets places a great weight on our shoulders as we recognize that this is God's will for us and we have not done it. And so the first thing that happens here is this this word, this verse drives us to our knees to confess to God our failures and to find forgiveness 
and shed blood of Christ. And that's the good news here. There is forgiveness. There is grace in Christ to forgive us for our self-centeredness and to begin to draw us out of our self-centeredness and to begin to serve as Christ served. Second application that grows out of this, one, is seeing our self-centeredness and, and repenting of it. Two, is by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit teaching of the Scriptures to learn to, and to, to, to develop seeing people as people. All too often, we tend to see others as annoyances. In our lives, they're, they're upsetting our calm, tranquil, peaceful existence. They're making demands on me. Uh, they need my time. They need my energy. They need my attention. We see them as annoyances. We tend to see people as problems, uh, as interruptions. The temptation to see people as competitors, to see people as commodities or resources, to see people as a means to an end. But we fail to see people as people made in the image of God. People who fundamentally are the same as we are, who want the same things for ourselves that we want. I'm quite struck in the scriptures with Jesus' own dealings with people, uh, those who came, particularly uh, later in chapter 14, when Jesus went to, to get away for some rest, to be alone. And the crowds followed him. And he welcomed them. He must have been very tired to want to go away, to be away, to get away, be alone. And yet when the crowds came, we read that he looked on them. We read in different places in Scripture that he he was filled with compassion for them, seeing them as harassed and helpless, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. What Jesus saw when he looked at people was not interruptions, not inconveniences, not demands on his time and energy, but people who were cut off from their Heavenly Father by their sins. People who needed to be reconciled to God. People who wanted joy and found heartache. People who wanted purpose and found emptiness. People who wanted life and found death. Jesus saw them as people who needed to be reconciled with God and had been separated from him by sin and by their sin. He felt compassion on them. He spent time with them. He listened to them. He loved them. He died for them. I like the way uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century London preacher, put it. He says, Do not merely see the offensive and the difficult and the ugly. See behind all that. Let us observe human beings in their relationship to God, destined for eternity. Let us learn to look at them in this new way, in this divine way. Look at them, says Christ, in effect, as I have looked upon you, and in the light of the thing that has brought me from heaven for you, to give my life for you. Look at them like that. The moment you do so, you will find that it is not difficult to implement the golden rule because at that point you are delivered from self and its terrible tyranny. And you're seeing man and woman with a new eye and in a different way. In other words, we need to learn to see people as Jesus saw people. Third application, we must live this way even if others do not reciprocate. Notice Jesus does not say here, whatever others do to you, do also to them. He says, whatever you wish 
that others would do for you, do to them. This has nothing to do with how they treat you, how they actually treat you, what they actually do to you, but rather what you wish they would do for you, so you do to them. We must live this way even if others do not live this way, even if others do not reciprocate. Fourth and last, we must become secure in the love of Christ for us, because only then will we be able to live in this way. All too often, our our treatment toward, our behavior toward other people is based on their behavior toward us. We respond to them the way that they respond to us. But you see, Jesus has already already addressed this. He's already taken this up. Verse 46, chapter 5, verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You see, if we love only those who love us, if we treat well only those who treat us well, we're no better than the Gentiles, which, as Jesus was using the term, meant those outside the grace of God, those outside the covenant, those outside Christ. You see, when we become secure in Christ's love, when we treat others graciously, not because of their treatment of us, but because of Christ's treatment of us, then we are beginning to put this into practice. And when we rest in the knowledge that we are accepted by and loved by Christ, then we are free to love other people, to treat them well, to do good to them, regardless of how they treat us, how they respond to us. Christ loved us. Christ died for you, my brother, my sister in Christ, when you were rebellious and unlovely and unlovable. And here he calls us to go and do likewise for others. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we do humble ourselves because we have failed to live in this way. And Lord, indeed, the entire Sermon on the Mount drives us in humility to our knees before you. Lord Jesus, we look at you and we see this lived out perfectly. Forgive us where we have fallen short, where we have failed, where we have disobeyed you here, where we have not pleased you here. Clothe us in the blood of Christ and the, the righteousness of Christ. Cleanse us with the blood of Christ. And Lord, help us. Taught by your word, filled with your Holy Spirit, to do for others what we wish they would do for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.